a lot of platform building and platform transformation, whether it's digital or otherwise, is really enabling people, enabling a community, figuring out what people are comfortable with, helping them to transform themselves where they want to and be comfortable with, with what change is kind of on the way. I'm Jason Harmon, and this is API Intersection, where you'll get insights from experienced API practitioners to learn best practices on things like API design, governance, identity, auth, versioning, and more. Welcome back to API Intersection. So today's guest uh, for me is uh, not only an, an old friend at this point, but I think when I first discovered kind of REST APIs in a meaningful way in the late aughts, you know, 2008, 2009, uh, I know for my team where we were designing our first REST APIs, uh, Mike Emmonson's book, uh, I think it was one or two at the time, those were like part of our little Bible set of how to do this stuff. Uh, so I have sort of a lifetime gratitude to Mike for being one of the early publishers of these things, uh, but obviously he's done a lot since then. So. At any rate, uh, I'm super stoked to have Mike on. Uh, I can't believe we went two years without having him. Me and Bailey just constantly smack ourselves on the forehead, like, how did this happen? Uh, but anyway, there's your intro. Uh, Mike Amundsen, uh, old friend and quite the expert. Uh, thanks for coming on. Great to be with you, Jason. Yeah, and I remember it's been quite a long time. We were just talking you know, ahead of the recording when we last saw each other. This pandemic has kind of messed with a lot of our heads, but it's great to get back with you. Great to talk with you. And a little bit, I'm also like, you know, why did it take so long? Because I've been really enjoying the uh, the podcast. So it's good to be with you. It's good to join you and, and all your all your listeners. Yeah, I think in retrospect, maybe it was that I was like, well, let's wait until we get this all hammered out and smooth and then somehow never got you back on the list. But anyways, we're here and it's great. <laughs> totally fine. Totally um, fine. Yeah. <laughs> the... Uh, I, I guess maybe for listeners who might not be familiar with you, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what you're up to these days and how you got here. Yeah, well, I've, I've actually spent the last couple of decades focusing on uh, programming the web, figuring out how, how to create experiences uh, on the web, you know, APIs of various flavors and types, although I spend most of my time in REST. Even even before the web was kind of popular, I was really fascinated with distributed computing, getting machines to work in orchestration and that sort of thing. So I've been at it for quite a while. I started writing about programming uh, by writing about things like database and Visual Basic and Windows platform things uh, in the late 90s. And I've been writing on and off ever since. I'm uh, sort of like an incorrigible writer. I just keep doing it anyway. Uh, and, and it always gives me a chance to learn from other people. So one of the things I really love is the chance to travel around and listen to people. And the, one of the best opportunities I got for that was with a group called the API Academy, which was now about 10 years ago, a little more than 10 years ago, a group of us started traveling around, listening to people talking about APIs and programs and platforms and all those things. So I've continued at that, although I've slowed down a little bit. Um, I continue uh, working away at that and actually have been spending a lot of time recently on that last element, that programs and platforms idea. Uh, how do we get beyond the single API to lots of APIs and APIs from uh, using APIs from people we've never met uh, um, that we don't control? And uh, how do we solve problems and, and with uh, collaboration and stuff like that? So 
that's kind of been the the most recent activity. Uh, this idea of platforms or products or or larger scale systems using the web. Well, I'm going to correct you uh, from being an incorrigible writer to being a prolific one. You have quite a list. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a that's a kind way to that's a kind way to say it. That's that's very nice. Thank you. I tried once. I got through the outline, and I was just like, I don't like this process. I'm not going to write a book. <laughs> Well, you know, I, th I think I've shared this before. There's, there's an arc to that story, too. In the beginning, I, you know, I love it. In the middle of it, it's like, eh, I guess I shouldn't. I really shouldn't have done this. By the end of it, I just wish this was over. So, and that happens every time. That's how I know I'm about done. I wish it was over. Yeah. Um, so I just moment. keep at it. <laughs> yeah. And that's the incorrigible part. It's like, you know how this is going to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like any good addiction. Uh, yeah. Well, you're definitely, uh, you know, singing our tune here, I think, in terms of the API intersection audience talking about, um, you know, uh, this sort of fascination with building the big distributed thing, but how to build a program mm -hmm. that I think in, in my view is like, how, it's fine that you can design one good API, but can you do that at scale, uh, especially in really large places that have like multiple divisions and very siloed mm -hmm. kind of different lines of business and uh, right. Having tried that a few times with some modicum of success, uh, it's really tough. <laughs> so I'd love to hear, uh, you know, what you're kind of getting into and what you're learning from that. Well, yeah, as you said, it, it can really be a challenge. Um, I, I've really taken these last few years to, to spend time talking to people about what those challenges look like. How do you... How do you scale up? How do you uh, not just do one, but do many? And I think the bigger part of the story, especially recently, what I've been finding in people I talk to is it's not just more and more API production. It's also more API consumption. So people are consuming Salesforce APIs or Google APIs or AWS APIs. You don't control those organizations. You don't control their naming conventions, their URL constructions, how they use put or post or patch or anything. You have to figure out how to start to collaborate or integrate or, or and somehow incorporate all of that creativity from someone else into what you're doing and solve your problems with their material. I think that's one of the things uh, that I think people find really, really challenging. How do I create something that's going to help someone I've never met solve a problem I haven't thought of. That's what good utilities are. That's what S3 is, right? S3 is a service and an API that solves tons and tons of problems that nobody at AWS has ever thought about. So how do you build that kind of world? And I think the other thing that's really uh, challenging is most of us inherit that world. We don't invent it. It's not a greenfield uh, experience. Uh, we show up. People have been working on this for years and it needs to change or it needs to get better or it needs to grow or it needs to needs to be slightly different or be added onto. So you don't have a homogenous space and you can't just kill off everything and start again. So I think all of these things have led me to this notion of thinking about a, a, a coherent API program. So does it make sense overall? You can't control everything, but is there some sense making? Is there some set of patterns and practices that you can lean on over a wide organization that helps everyone solve the problems they need to do. And that is super challenging. So what does coherent mean in this context? Uh, you seem to have a lot of meaning attached to that. 
Yeah, yeah. It's uh, that that uh, word's doing a lot of heavy lifting in the sentence, right? Um, the way I think about this, uh, often I I run into people who say they want a very consistent design methodology or a very consist consistent set of APIs, so that it increases the familiarity, it lowers the uh, the cognitive load on developers. We want to increase the developer experience. And I think that's a very laudable, very valuable uh, approach. But oftentimes you don't control a lot of the incoming or you don't even control a lot of your own organization. You talked about, you know, widely distributed organizations. There's, there's a handful of organizations I've been working on recently that are at global at scale, different languages, different levels of, of investment and experience and skill set and, and all those kinds of things. So you need a program that's going to make sense across a very wide range of skills and abilities and interests. IETF does a lot of this as well. They need to design things that that you know stretch across a huge global community. So I think when you do that, you you have to sort of change the angle. You have to change sort of the way you think about uh, what your goal is. Your goal isn't to get everyone to be the same. Your goal is to get uh, people to who can more easily collaborate. So we may not agree on everything, but we agree on enough. We may not control every aspect of the data model or the vocabulary or the URLs or which style of API, but we control enough or we document enough that people can make choices that are good for them. So the coherence idea is, does this seem like a reasonable place to hang out? Does this make enough sense for me to work? And I think that is what I mean when I think about a coherent set of uh, design factors or implementation details. Yeah, it's, I, I, I think you're making a really valuable point here that like, and I hear the same thing all the time, right? Is like, how can we be more consistent? We want this bunch of APIs to feel like one thing. And you're right, a lot of them like, great. But is it a bunch of stuff that technically feels the same, but uses language and concepts that as a consumer, you've never heard of? Right. Right. Um, yeah. So like, I think I, I refer to this sort of thing typically as like the comprehensibility. Like, can I look at what this ah. is and comprehend what it is trying to tell me? Right. I, yeah, I like that. That's good. I, I, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me as well. You're, you're trying to make sure it at least connects in some kind of way. Is that what you mean when you say that? Yeah. I mean, it, uh, so the way that I always frame these things when I'm, uh, you know, in the past have worked with different teams of people. And like you said, trying to find like, what is the common ground it is, mm -hmm. uh, I always want to tell that group, if I drew what we're talking about on a big marker board and I brought a room full of customers in and I said, is this your stuff, right? Do you recognize mm -hmm. this? They would, without any documentation, just be able to see kind of the terms being used by these APIs and maybe some soft linkage as to how they connect together and go, yeah, I know what that is. Uh, this is the stuff that I do with you, right? Yeah. So that ability to comprehend just by the, the sort of skeleton of the design that, yes, this is familiar to me. Yeah, I like, I like that a lot. That's, I think that's a, a, a good way to, to think about it. Will people recognize what it is they do or because, you know, we, I think in design, we talk a lot about this notion of you want to design for the uh, consumer audience. You want to solve their problems, not yours. Yeah. You want to design for their world, for their everyday experience and not your own. Um, 
so that it's easy for them to comprehend. It's easy for them to, it speaks their language. Domain-driven design talks a lot about this from Eric Evans and Vern Vaughn and all those kinds of things. And we even get to the point of talking about how it's important to have that ubiquitous language so that different communities in in the same organization can communicate. Also, we even design with uh, these um, anti-corruption layers, these levels where, okay, I don't understand all of that over there, but I need to interact with it in some kind of way that that's, you know, coherent or comprehensive yeah. uh, for me. So I think, I think there's a lot of examples of that already in the way we design and build. Yeah. But I guess the other side, uh, so that's sort of the, the customer centric bit, which I, I think is... Mm-hmm is perhaps implicit in what you're saying with that sort of coherence from that perspective. But I imagine that on the, um, on the kind of internal side, when we look at the picture of all things, it's much bigger than what the external world seeing. And, uh, perhaps coherent is, is maybe where it's most relevant there is do we all get this? (laughs) Yeah. But you know, the other thing, uh, that that's exactly right. Um, Internally, there are different pressures, different uh, levers, uh, different even a different pace of change, right? The pace of change internally, you think of Stuart Brand's pace layering, right? You know, the change internally is faster often than the change externally for lots and lots of reasons. Um, but I, I think another part of this is just getting used to the idea that it's a very large organization. Some of the people I'm dealing with They've acquired companies over time, and those companies have their own language and vocabulary and product space and so so on and so forth. And we know just from a business standpoint how challenging it is to get communities to blend, right, and to make some sense of things. It's even more challenging when you're trying to get the technological details, the technical details of those communities to blend. So sometimes I don't really understand this particular part of the business, but I do understand some layer or some technical detail, some interface or some other element to the story. So I think that's another thing that uh, I've been kind of seeing over the last few years. When you think about creating platforms, you're really creating places where variety can grow, even internally and and, and thrive, because we're not going to reinvest millions to rewrite this the, the software or the interfaces for a company we just acquired. We, we, need, we need to use what's already there. So I think that coherence, um, uh, I, I got this from the coherence, cohesion thing and object modeling, right? It needs to make sense, but it also needs to you know, fit together you know, in a comfortable way. So I think even, even in the case of internal APIs, we're, we need to think about how can we get used to the way things are done rather than try to impose the way I think they ought to be done, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense on the sort of coherence, cohesion thing. Um, I should have known you'd go CS on me uh, for the meaning of the word. (laughs) (laughs) Old, old stuff that rattles around. And I may even be using it incorrectly, and you're going to find some CS people that are going to smack me (laughs) really hard. That's okay. I deserve it. We already said consistent once. That's guaranteed argument, so no big deal. Um, so it, it sounds like in the, some of these kind of larger company engagements you're involved in that you're, uh, providing consulting to them on sort of how to build out these, uh, large scale programs. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's part of it. Um, I, I can talk about one of the examples I'm working with. I'm actually um, having a great time working with the United Nations Environmental Program. And it is just what you said. It's sort of building out. They, they need to scale up. They, they know how to design APIs and know how to build APIs. And they have lots and lots of stakeholders. Stakeholders are the globe, right? I, the number keeps changing. It's around 200 member organizations, 200 more, 200 a few less. Uh, and they all need to be able to contribute, in this particular case, environmental data, data about their own organization, their own country, their own lands, water, air, all these kinds of things, as well as consume information uh, that's shared by other organizations, whether it's from a central office, their central offices in Nairobi, or whether it's the UN in the US, or, or there's another large uh, organization in Bonn, Germany. Um, the challenge, however, is some of those organizations like the UK and the US and Australia and several others, they've got supercomputers and full-time developers and all those other things. Other, are there, some of these are you know, relatively small territories. They, they maybe got spreadsheets and they don't even have uh, you know, 24-hour connection services at some locations in order to be able to contribute and consume. So you need to build a program that takes all of that range of skill and effort and ability and commitment into account in some kind of way. And that means it may not be the same for some organizations. Some organizations, uh, kind of a, a sporadic file transfer experience is the best, best solution. Others, immediate sort of event-driven or streaming type of things may be the best solution. For some, it's a restful kind of resource orientation. For some, it's a very data specific. They're really just passing data back and forth. So it might be GraphQL or something. So how do you create a, a, a kind of consistency, a kind of coherence or comprehension when you're using different uh, formats, different technologies, they're using different vocabularies? It's, it's super interesting. And the way this works is by focusing on this sort of level of abstraction where we all play, where we all talk about the same things. Uh, luckily, the UN has lots of organizational uh, control over vocabulary and data points and how you report things. So it's really mostly about implementation. So how do you make implementation safe, easy, and effective, and all these other things? Uh, it's been a fantastic experience. Yeah, it's interesting. It wouldn't even have even done me, but it makes sense that uh, vocabulary would be quite well controlled in the NGO uh, community. Um, right. But yeah, it's, uh, it's the thing that I think with guests who especially consult in this sort of thing that the vocabulary and language stuff is where everyone starts. And it seems so yeah. counterintuitive. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, but it, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the vocabulary itself that helps us like even you and I, yeah you know, get somewhere, right? So getting to, st getting to think about that as your, as your ground or as your, as your currency can really empower you, really free you from getting too bogged down in technical details. Like as long as we're talking the, the same languages, we can do different technical implementations. And in fact, you can be more experimental with those technical details because you know you've got this this glue, this grounding of this vocabulary set. So you're, you're right. It is, it seems counterintuitive, but once people get used to thinking that way, it, I think it's one of the most powerful ways to start designing a coherent system. Yeah. 
do you find that uh so we had kind of said before that part of that that language that vocabulary is having this sort of customer centricity to it do you find that there's sort of mm-hmm. a resistance uh to that sort of thing uh, toward always wanting to use the more internal terminology for things um i maybe uh, do you, you mean in the sense of like we're uh, treating other internal parties as customers kind of language. Well, it's like, uh, and I, I guess I'm foreshadowing my own past trauma, but it's like, <laughs> you know, when you're sort of challenging, like, Hey, that's probably not the way a customer would refer to it, but it's like, well, that's, uh, you know, the customer facing terminology is wildly inaccurate for what we do, you know, and you're kind of like, yeah. aren't you serving those customers? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that definitely goes on. But, you know, I will see, I will tell you, and that may be what you're getting to, that goes on in large internal organizations that I've worked with as well. You know, we don't talk about it that way in North America. We talk about it this way. And and so so I think that that happens all the time. Uh, and I do think there is a tension, a push and pull as to consumer versus producer kind of thing. Um one of the things I learned from a colleague, uh, Ronnie Mitra, who was a colleague at the API Academy, he's working at uh, Publicist Sapient. Um, he talks a lot about colleagues, creating systems for colleagues. I think Ronnie spends most of his time in the finance and banking space. So one of the ways he talks about this notion of who we're serving is that we're serving our friends, our colleagues, our, our neighbors, the people you know, a few desks away, whether it's actually physically a few desks away or virtually uh, and across the globe. So some of that, I think, improves some of some of that situation. In other words, they're not distant customers. They're actually local colleagues working on the same kind of project. But yes, I do see that that kind of tension, that kind of, well, we need to be we need to be more accurate. I, what is it? It's the uh, I think one of the sayings attributed to Confucius, they said, if you were if you were the king of the world, what's the first thing you do? He would say, he said, I'd make names correspond to things. <laughs> like, like if we would all just agree that yeah. uh, all these names are have only one meaning, boy, that would be great. But of course, <laughs> it doesn't happen. It's funny when you look at all this large language model stuff going on and you go like, it's not that they have the same meaning, but they have the same predictability. <laughs> so maybe Exactly. <laughs> That is that is really a great that is a great observation. Uh, I've been talking to people about uh, large language models because they became so popular recently, and trying to get to that look. It's you know it's code complete. It's it's finishing your sentence. It's it's prediction uh, accuracy and and let people see the power that they have there. But yeah, a lot of this is just predicting what you're going to say in a meeting, well, whether or not I, 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 I think that the current things people are working on, certainly interesting and innovative, and who knows what it'll turn out to be useful for. But I think to me, what's been fascinating is just for myself to learn more about the, like, the structure of language across the globe, and how many things yeah. can be treated as language, I think has just really yeah. reinforced to me, the power of language and words and what it is that we expect versus what we get sometimes, right? Uh, It's just huge. Uh, And and I think so few people really grasp that under all the AI marketing hype, that large language models and like the structure of human language is really Mm -hmm. at the root of it all. And it's fascinating. 
It is super, super fascinating. You know, I, in design, I, I spend a lot of time in design space. And when I talk to people about designing, I say, you know, when you and I speak, we trade words back and forth, but they don't always, what I think it means isn't always what you think it means. And we have to keep negotiating. You have to keep working around that. And in fact, it's that inability to have a perfect agreement that is the responsibility for the creativity. Uh, if we had to agree on everything before we started, it would be, we'd have very few people to talk to. Uh, and that's kind of the way I think of computer systems as well. So to see the large language models, you know, exposed, I, you know, it's been several years, I think 2015 is when they first started talking about large language models. Um, to see them now become very popular, as you say, sort of reminds people, you know, this is just basically, you know, prediction based on structure. And it turns out there are lots of ways to structure this. It's not just one way. So I think it's, I think it's wonderful. Anyways, uh, sidetrack there, but, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, I guess this is all just to say, uh, much like the, uh, what is it? The two hard things in computer science, uh, in cache invalidation and naming things. Uh, and then there's a sometimes yeah. too, but we're always reminded yep. naming stuff's hard. Uh, so <laughs> I guess beyond that, when you're looking at, you know, these kind of larger scale programs, what are the other facets that you think have, uh, have turned out to generally be true or that you've kind of learned about? Well, I, I think one of the ones I, I touched on was the fact that it's always heterogeneous. It's never homogeneous. You always have lots of lots of states of things, lots of versions, lots of variations, lots of models, lots of languages, lots of technologies. It's never a monoculture. So um, you want to get used to that and sort of make that your superpower. That's one of your superpowers is that we're not a monoculture here. We have experience with, uh, with you know, data style interfaces and function style interfaces and resource style interfaces and you know, action style and streaming style. You want to have that. I think another one is um, that you're never complete. You're never done. In any large organization, um, there's always going to be some program, some API, some platform that's in the middle of a rebuild or a redesign or just a, you know, a, a transfer or, a, you know, some kind of thing. You're never stable. There's always some part of the system that's undergoing some kind of reconstruction. So you have to kind of make that your superpower too, the ability to have parts of the organization that are operating with, uh, as you would think about it, um, uh, like, you know, detoured roads rather than, you know, the direct freeway. We're still building the new lanes, the extra lanes. So the fact that change is actually the only constant is this, you know, is the old meme is actually the superpower that a lot, a lot of these organizations that I work with have. If they can support the notion of change in, in, in all these different directions and still move forward and still operate, still sell products, still provide service, that's a huge advantage over organizations that need to have everything kind of stable before they can take the next step. So I, I can't help but observe that the two things we've touched on primarily are, you know, how we name things, how we talk about things, and then how we sort of cope and, and think about change is like, in a lot of ways, yeah. you're talking about there's, there's a culture changing aspect to these things. That, yeah. you know, we hear a lot is sort of like a requisite factor, I guess, when you think about 
uh, sort of platform transformation and the culture change it requires? What do you think are important things? Yeah, well, that's that's very good. We we could talk about that for for quite a while, probably. I think um, a big challenge is to also think of all of your community, all your staff, all everyone who's working, uh, even suppliers, partners, as part of your technology, as part of your delivery mechanism, as part of your system, your platform. And that means that you, just as we don't control a lot of parts of the platform, we just consume that information. There's lots of parts of our organization, our people, our cultures. We can't control that either. That We can't just you know flip it as a switch. It's not a bunch of robots. So a lot of platform building and platform transformation, whether it's digital or otherwise, is really enabling people, enabling a community, um, figuring out what people are comfortable with, helping them. Uh, to transform themselves where they want to and be comfortable with with what change is kind of on the way. Um, you know, I've, I found enough examples in my own life uh, where I myself or people I'm around, it's like, no, I'm, I'm sticking here. I'm, I'm going to ride this out until the very end. I, in consulting business, Every every December, a bunch of us would end up. We called it on the beach. You you were on the bench, really, but we sat on the beach in in Ohio and in, uh, in Michigan, and um, we would have these talks uh, with each other. We sort of teach each other, and one of the games we'd play is, what technology uh, transformation can I ignore for one more year and still stay billable? The idea was. How can I still contribute but not learn anything new? <laughs> what a terrible notion. So th those were the lectures. Like, here's, you know, is it technology? It's called Java or it's called Elixir or, you know, and it's like, you can probably ignore this one more year. And, of course, people wouldn't do that. They would be like, hey, I, I like that. So some people are really comfortable with new challenges and change. Others are not. How can you find places for everyone in your organization? So change isn't a threat. It's just a feature, right? And um, you figure out everyone's level in that. I, I think that's a, at least for the kind of organizations I've been working with, that's a big challenge for a lot of them as to how to, how to manage and enable positive change. And I think there was a bit that you touched on uh, in, that I think is also parallel and, and sort of orthogonally relevant, which is sort of inclusivity. Uh, this is something that, yeah. at, like at Stoplight, we really woke up to in the last year or two. When I first started a couple of years ago, I looked and went, well, you know, develop, this is developer stuff, building APIs. They're having conversations in GitHub. What's the problem, right? Like, no big deal. That's <laughs> where the conversation's at. But then we have stories now of like product managers who are designing APIs without developers. Right. Yeah. And so it's like that yeah. the, the impact of it all has spread out. And I think that yep. at least in the change we've seen in the last few years is like, you have to really kind of be prepared to include everyone. The platform is the company in some ways, if you're doing it right. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that goes back to what I'm learning as I work with the UN and some of these other organizations is the level of interest and skill and responsibility, like who's in charge of whatever varies widely. And the, the wider your reach, the more people you get introduced to, the more people you meet up with and serve, the more variations, the more diversity and, uh, and all of that comes into play. So being prepared for that. Um, one of the things uh, 
I'll, I'll do another name drop, Mehdi Majui, who was in our API Academy for a while. He had this great way of thinking about all these things that you needed to do in order to have a healthy API, you know, design and documentation and scaling and monitoring. He had a list, I think about 10 things. And what I loved about the way he approached it, he says, that's not 10 different jobs. Those are 10 things that have to be covered somehow. And it might be all one person. You might be a full stacky situation. Some of these jobs might be, uh, tasks might be par you know, parceled out to this group or that group or this person. It doesn't really matter. You just need to make sure you make that possible for whoever ends up responsible. So I think your example of how you're at the point where we're at the point where tooling allows other people to start doing design work. You know, you don't have to be a, you know, a, an engineer or so on and so forth to start doing design work. I find that really exciting. I mean, that's enabling For sure. a bunch of other, other people. And of course that's part of the challenge, right? As well, then it turns out that person might need a different tool or a different kind of feedback yeah. uh, in order to make that work. And I love that. Well, and it's also like, you know, I always look at where we're at with sort of developer experience at where like UX was in the late 90s, early 2000s, right? And it's like, yep. if you just threw the experience to a bunch of engineers and said, come up with a great design, you know what you'd get. It'd be an engineered experience, right? Sure. Um, and why mm -hmm. would we do the same with developer products, APIs, SDKs, whatever? We need those uh, more customer-facing people who hear the market to be involved in the process in some material way, if it, if not the, the very least part of the review cycle to give critical feedback. But yeah, if we can give them the tools to do it themselves, great, fine, you know? Right. And I, I think that's part of this. Again, I think one of the reasons we're seeing so much about products and platforms is that starts to become the product, you know, the product that enables people to do something, thinking of your products as tools, uh, as as maybe a step along the journey to solve a customer problem rather than just being the end right and i and i think i find that particularly uh in you know engaging when i talk to organizations i often find the thing that we're working on is not the end of the road it may just be the beginning of the road maybe what we're trying to do is, is make it possible for a bunch of other people to solve uh, new problems we're not trying to solve their problems we're just trying to create a platform where others can solve problems that's a, a to me that's a very uh, exciting uh, line of work so earlier you mentioned uh, with this un project in particular that because the vocabulary stuff is easy and, and perhaps some of this sort of more diverse and inclusive viewpoint is, is I would imagine, a little more normalized in that environment, that, that sort of the, the tooling and implementation stuff is kind of the bigger focus. But you mentioned like variation and change is all we know. So like, you know, I think some tech leaders go like, oh, cool, let's come up with the one stack everybody's going to build and everything on. Uh, right. So, like, how do you approach that sort of thing and come up with something that's actually an accelerator? Right. So th that's exactly what we're what we're working on right now, which is what are the what are the recommendations for not falling down a rabbit hole of a of a single technology or a particular technology, but also a, arriving at some kind of platform approach, some kind of stability that people can count on, and. Uh, one of the one of the ways we're, we're looking at this is trying to think of any technological uh, solution. Uh, the phrase that we're using is technology changes, but the problems often don't. 
you're still trying to solve the same set of problems. You think of any organization, whether they're selling physical products or they're selling insurance or whatever, the product is the product is the product. But the technology, the company that's been around for 100 years, the technology to make and distribute, design, make and distribute that product has changed vastly over the last last century. That doesn't mean we're not in the business of, of selling widgets. We are, but we'll just apply technology as to whatever helps us do a great job of selling widgets to our audience. So I, trying to get people to think that same kind of way, that technology is a tool, is an enabler, and it's probably transient. Even data models, might, data implementations may be transient, even if the models stay the same over time. So whether you're using you know, a SQL server or a GraphQL kind of uh, data approach, the models may be the same, but the technology is going to be quite different. So trying to get people to think about, it's a little bit more abstract to think about what the, how the vocabulary is turned into models, how models can be acted upon, and then say, okay, well, with that in mind, what kind of technology do we want to use today? What do our audience want? Some audience, they definitely need FTP files. Others definitely want to get some kind of event-driven kind of uh, technology. So those don't become challenges. Uh, those don't become threats as much as they become new challenges, new things to learn. And I guess the uh, coherence factor is coming up with sort of, here are the list of acceptable options, that sort of thing. Yep. Yeah. Yes, ex exactly. You, you, you can't have just like, it's not a wild west, right? So there are limits, uh, there are resource limits, there are funding limits. So what happens often, these, the, there's a central organization that I'm working with. Their job is, is to say, you know what? You can use this tool or that tool or that tool. This platform, these have been vetted. These open source tools have been tested and validated and approved. These products have been licensed. How can we help you solve your problem using this collection of stuff? And often... The, that audience for that conversation are individual divisions, uh, developers, programmers, architects, and so on and so forth. Occasionally, uh, it's a, just a couple of individuals who are just trying to figure out how to meet their mandate to produce and consume the kind of information that their government needs. Yeah, it's funny. Over the course of our conversation, how many times you've mentioned CIA Academy folks, and I should have mentioned earlier what like a just murderer's row of experts that was in that team. Uh, what a pleasure that must have been in those days. Uh, and it's I love it, following the, uh, all the people from that team around and see what they're doing nowadays. Yes, it is. It is really an amazing. I I was so lucky to fall into a great, as you said, it's just it's just a wonderful set of really creative thinkers, um, Arakli Nadarashvili, who had worked at NPR. And then I think he's currently working, he's working for Chase, yeah. uh, JP Morgan Chase. Yeah. Uh, and um, Eric Vilda, who's written several books and is uh, working right now, I think, on a kind of a, kind of a similar kind of consulting technology. He's very much into this notion of platforms mm -hmm. and services. Yeah, we've, so we've had Eric on here and then on his YouTube channel as well. Yeah, definitely uh, in the go. same yeah. space. Yeah, Eric is a prolific YouTuber. Uh, I always love talking to Eric and yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I guess we went down a big list of stuff there, but I guess for, for listeners who are thinking like, you know, yeah, you're helping the UN craft their strategy, but in my little <laughs> world and where I'm just getting started, that's all this stuff sounds a little like 
lofty and overwhelming, like where would you suggest that folks start in looking at their own kind of transformation at perhaps more attainable scales? Yeah. So I think for a lot of organizations, that, that initial reaction, which is, you know, we're not that big, that doesn't really apply to me. I will tell you, my experience has been, actually, they're probably right. You, we don't like when we talk about microservices, right? We talk about this idea. If you got a team of five people, you don't design 25 microservices because a team of five people really only needs one, right? You, you, you kind of grow when you need to. A lot of organizations, they don't need a level of uh, heterogeneity that I, you know, that, that I find in a lot of these uh, net global organizations because they're not global. They're, they're working on their own. But what they may need is this, um, this same idea that what we want to do is, is make technology enabler rather than uh, a gravity well. We want to have a com comprehensive kind of approach to thinking about this, but our implementation may be, may be very specific, especially as a startup. Uh, you know, what, are your, what does your audience need? What, how does this work? It's probably a single technology. That's great. Be ready when the audience wants another technology or you need to change. Be ready to make that change and don't hold back is really kind of the way I think about it. So, again, adopting that change philosophy doesn't mean you have to make it complicated from the start. You just have to mean you need to be ready to face it when it comes along. Sage advice. Um, so, uh, I could... I could do this all day, uh, but I know the attention span of podcast listeners is limited. So uh, where can folks uh, kind of hear from you more? Where should they uh, look to find out more from you? Um, probably the best place to keep track of me nowadays is through my social media outlets. So I'm Mammond, M-A-M-U-N-D, at um, Twitter and at GitHub and at LinkedIn and uh, at Mastodon. And at Substack, uh, there are a handful of places, and, and YouTube as well. Uh, and I'm, I'm always trying to share something interesting. I love to get feedback. I'd love to hear from people. Uh, join up, sign up, link with me, whatever, whatever the media pattern is. And I would love to learn from, it, from you what you're doing, what you're working on, what's challenging and interesting. And I'll continue to share what I've got. And, and you and McClarty have a podcast as well, right? That's right. So uh, Matt and I have done APIs Unplugged for the last three years, I think. Uh, that was um, associated with Salesforce. Matt is now with another organization, Boomi, and we're starting up a new podcast called the API Experience. New, it's got a new name, but um, it's uh, going, to, going to start up in the next month or so. And it's going to be very, very similar. And, I, and again, Matt is a great resource, an incredible resource for some really interesting people along the way. And our idea is to bring new experiences to everyone in the API space. So, so that's coming to a podcast. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, you and, and McCarty for sure have always been giving to the community. So definitely tune in and learn from these folks. So thanks again, Mike, for joining. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you have a question you want to ask, Look in the description of whichever platform you're viewing or listening on, and there should be a link there so you can go submit a question, and we'll do our best to find out the right answer for you.
API Intersection podcast listeners are invited to sign up for Stoplight and save up to $650. Use the code Intersection10 to get 10% off a new subscription to Stoplight Platform Starter or Pro. Take a look at this episode's description for more details.